Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 22, if you would. We're going to take just a one-week little diversion from 1 Peter, Ezekiel 22. I know this is a special Father's Day uh, for the sailors. Philip and Elizabeth, um, just a couple of weeks ago, I think, adopted, already had adopted two little girls and adopted two sons. And so I know this is a special day for you. And uh, my son-in-law and daughter, Terrence and Kayla, Uh, have two little girls they're fostering here and so uh, it's exciting to see all of those children in church learning about Jesus and also my son-in-law and Brett Clark also wore pink shirts so thank you very much for uh, Dennis Boyle by the way said he would never wear a pink shirt unless he was selling Mary Kay so we have to we're gonna have to help Dennis a little bit all right Ezekiel chapter 22 this morning And uh, verse 23 is where we're going to start. I want to just quickly say um, this message, while it is not from 1 Peter, certainly fits the mold of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Uh, Next Sunday, I will return to 1 Peter, and um, we're going to be covering verses 18 through 25. And as I've worked on that the last few weeks, that has developed into a three-part, just those verses, a three-part message dealing with some really extremely important cultural issues right now. And so part two and three really need to be preached together. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach part one next week and then the holiday weekend, unless you'll all promise to come on the 4th of July weekend. And I don't see anybody promising to do that. So um, I'm going to then do a standalone message on the, the weekend of the 4th and then come back after that and pick up uh, the rest of First Peter 2. It's just going to be, it's very important for our day. And as I shared with you the last couple of weeks, I planned to preach from First Peter last September or October. I had no idea that we would be dealing with the issues in our culture that we are. But so just so you know, First Peter next Sunday, and then we'll take a week off from that and be back and finish that section. Beginning in verse number 23 of Ezekiel 22. Uh, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, When the Lord has not spoken, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Holy Spirit, uh, we are so grateful for your word today that is alive and powerful. So grateful, God, that uh, you still speak to us today and you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Your word is pertinent and relevant to this day in this culture. So pertinent, so relevant. And I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear as your people tonight, may, to, to, this morning. May we not be so concerned with those who do not confess you as Lord, but instead may we be concerned with our own lives. Those of us who say you are Lord, challenge us to walk worthy of that calling. Lord, I pray that um, you would speak through me today. I ask God for your anointing, not because I deserve it or have earned it, but because without it, everything I say will fall flat. But I pray instead that your anointing would speak through me and your word would challenge our hearts, divide us under soul and spirit, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, convict us, cleanse us, challenge us, make us whole. And make us the people that you desire for us to be in this hour, for this day, for this nation, for this world. Help me to speak clearly. Not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A Friday night, um, March 13th of 1964, at 3.15 a.m., a 28-year-old woman was brutally stabbed and murdered in an alleyway just 100 feet from her home in Queens, New York. Her name was Kitty Genovese. At roughly 2.30 in the morning, she left Ev's 11th hour bar in Hollis, Queens to head to her apartment, which was about 45 minutes away. She stopped at a light just a few blocks after she left, and she never noticed a car pulled out of a parking lot and followed her. And she never noticed that that car followed her all the way home. She got out of her car after parking in a lot at Long Island Railroad Station, uh, parking not less than 100 feet from her front door. The car that followed her had pulled into a bus stop that was just across the street. A 29-year-old man who had a wife and three kids and no criminal record until that night got out of his car and he approached Kitty. He approached her with a hunting knife and he stabbed her in her back twice. She screamed for help. Several neighbors acknowledged hearing her scream, but only one did anything at all about it. His name was Robert Moser and he recognized it as a scream for help, but all he did was holler outside, hey, leave that girl alone. The attacker, Winston Mosley, left her to crawl to her door And then he got in the car, and according to witnesses, he left. But in 10 minutes, he was back, and he found Kitty at her front door. He raped her, he robbed her, he stabbed her several more times, and he left her there for good. At 4.45 a.m., an ambulance was called, but she died before getting to the hospital. Uh, There were several ear witnesses. They heard something. They called the police, but they said their calls were not given priority. There were others that said they made calls, but... There were no record of their calls. And others said they thought about calling, but they decided just to mind their own business and not get involved. Mosley was picked up. He confessed to to the crime. He was convicted of murder, and he died in 2016 at the age of 81. Sometime later, the New York Times ran an article claiming as many as 38 witnesses saw that uh, that claim was later debunked 
but many did hear or see something and did nothing. It became known then and is still known today as the bystander syndrome. When somebody knows something is happening that needs intervention, but they do nothing. The book of Ezekiel was written during the Babylonian exile of the people of Judah. There were three stages to that exile. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon and in the year 605 BC, he marched into Jerusalem. And in that first stage, he only took back a few captives. Among them were Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And then he left after creating some damage and certainly taking some captives back to Babylon. He returned in 597 BC. And at this time, he took 10,000 captives. Among them was Ezekiel the prophet that we read from today. A few years later in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar returned and this time it was the final blow. He destroyed Jerusalem. He tore down the temple. He tore down the walls, pummeled the city and carried the people away to Babylon as captives. Ezekiel writes his letter or his prophecy in between 597 and 586. He is warning the people of Judah, of the coming destruction. He is warning God's people that if they don't turn around, things are going to happen that are going to bring destruction. He describes what is happening among God's people. And he describes the sins of the people. And here is just a sampling of what he says. The priest, those who were supposed to be bringing people to God, were instead using their position for financial gain. They were not living lives of holiness. They were not separating from evil. As a matter of fact, they were taking part in all kinds of sinful pleasure and they were bringing immeasurable shame to the people of God. The prophets were covering up sin. He says they were whitewashing it. Instead of calling it out, they were making excuses and letting the people off the hook instead of pointing out the fact that they had wandered from God. The prophets were allowing evil to appear as good and they were not fearing God nor his judgments. Sad, but that is so like the world in which we live today. The prophets were making excuses like the people of God make excuses today. Things like, well, everyone is now doing that. We certainly should not separate ourselves. It is a cultural thing. Or excuses like we live in a day when it's impossible to avoid sin or we are just human or we're under the covenant of grace. Why concern ourselves with it? Or God loves us just the way we are. We don't need to change or God doesn't see our sin because we are his righteousness in Christ. And despite our failure or rebellion, we are whitewashing a lack of holiness and whitewashing sin today. In the midst of that, Ezekiel said God was looking for one man, just one. One person that would stand in the gap, that would, would breach or, or bring together that, that breach in the wall between a holy God and an unholy humanity. He looked for one to get involved, but he found none. Again, in the English Standard Version, it reads like this. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found none. Look at this in the New Living Translation. 
I look for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I search for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. But I found no one. I'm going to bridge that text of Ezekiel written thousands of years ago or more than 2,000 years ago, 2,600 years ago. I'm going to bridge that text to 2020. In June of 2020, in the Christian Courier, an article was written by Wayne Jackson. I must admit he is uh, an ultra-conservative, probably more than any of us even in this room, and certainly lands theologically on the far, far right. I pray that he is wrong, but the points he makes are quite sobering. In his article, he begins by saying, I really don't know where I fall in my perspective of our future and the divine orchestration of earthly affairs. I am supremely confident. I know that the sovereign creator of the universe will eventually bring his divine plan to fruition. The major lesson of the book of Revelation is this. The cause of heaven will be triumphant ultimately. Victory will belong to the faithful because the Lamb of God is overcome by virtue of his death and resurrection. And all who stand in opposition to the king of kings will be vanquished. But he goes on to say, on the other hand, I am somewhat pessimistic about the future of this nation. And that concerns me, he says, for the welfare of my children and grandchildren and yours. I'm not unaware that a Jonah could arise proclaiming a message of repentance that might turn the whole country towards moral reformation thus far. However, he writes, I have not seen them. What makes America labor under the illusion, he writes, that she is an eternal empire. This country is in a collision course with oblivion. It's likely that it will not come in our day. But the indications are painfully obvious that serious decay is underway. Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and Rome, none of these superpowers lasted more than a few centuries because decadence consumed them. And there are clear signals that the same weaknesses are eating away at America's vitals. Let us reflect, he says, on four areas of national concern. I'm only going to highlight what he talks about. He begins by talking about economic irresponsibility. Spending is out of control beyond anything we have ever known. The national debt now exceeds $5 trillion dollars. And yet the psalmist says in Psalm 37, 21, it's the wicked that borrows and doesn't pay. And debt is seen all the way through scripture as that which enslaves us. It is our master and we are its slave. He secondly talks about the educational system. He begins with the failure of the system. 25% of high school seniors barely can read their diplomas and a standardized test that was given to 26,000 Americans concludes that there are 80 million Americans that are deficient in basic reading and mathematical skills. He then talks about the agenda of the system, and he says there is absolutely no doubt that the national educational system has a subversive agenda. That, w- that is which to proselyte children to materialistic humanism. And then he talks about the danger of the educational system. Both teachers and students alike live in fear because there are guns there. There are, there are other weapons. Drugs are freely circulated. Condoms are provided. Sexual promiscuity is rampant. And then he asks the question, is this the sort of socialization that some parents are fearful their youngsters will miss if they're educated in private Christian schools or in a home environment? And then he discusses the judicial system. 
in a very significant book written by a very liberal author, by the way, called Guilty, the Collapse of the Criminal Justice System, the author, the late Harold Rothwax, a judge who presided over criminal cases in New York City for the past 25 years, talks about the criminal justice system. And he says, we have a formalism and technicalities, but little common sense. It's about time America wakes to the fact that we are in the fight of our lives. He discusses the fact that he gives dozens of examples of rape and murder, charges being dropped even after confessions because of technicalities. But he really hones in on American family life. President James Garfield once said that the sanctity of marriage and the family relation make the cornerstone of our American society and civilization. But a number of current conditions clearly suggest that the cornerstone is crumbling. The immoralities that are rampant in our nation, sex before marriage that is at an all-time high, seven out of ten millennials think that it is acceptable to change one's gender from what they are born with. The skyrocketing divorce rate, the homosexual agenda that has flooded our nation, all of these are just examples of a nation whose American, whose family is crumbling. Our nation, it is, is at a very difficult place, very much like in Ezekiel's day. Notice again what he said, I looked for a man who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. On this Father's Day of 2020, I would say God is looking for a man or a woman, a mom or a dad, a parent or a grandparent, a single somebody, someone's who will stand in the gap and who will not be bystanders, but will say, we'll get involved to see our nation turn back to God. Let me just share with you three or four thoughts very quickly because we can ill afford to be bystanders. Number one, the search is on. God said, I looked for a man who might rebuild the wall of righteousness. God is looking for and he's searching. He knows all and he sees all. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows how influential we can be. And he wants us to rebuild the wall of righteousness. So how do we rebuild the wall of righteousness in our homes and in our communities? Let me just give you four very simple ways. Number one, we rebuild the wall of righteousness by prioritizing prayer and the word of God in our homes and in our church. We talk to every dad and every grandpa for just a moment. You need to every single day pray with your children, read the word of God with your children. There may be times where it feels like it's not taking. That doesn't, don't worry about that. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. We must again prioritize prayer and the word of God in our homes if we are going to once again rebuild the wall of righteousness. Number two, we must model integrity, holiness, and fidelity. We must live lives that are beyond reproach. The time has come where we not just straddle the fence any longer, but we clearly pick a side and say, as for me and my house, we are going to serve God. We're not going to play with it. We're not going to dangle it around. We're not going to say, well, we'll kind of add it to our agenda. It is going to be that this family is going to be faithful and serve God. Three, 
Let's discipline and train in the ways of righteousness. The word of God is not out of date. It still teaches us how we are to train and raise our children and how we are to discipline them. And four, we must guard our actions so that our actions match our directives. It's not good enough to say, do what I say, don't do what I do. We need to be men and women who do the right thing so that our children model not just what we say, but what we do. Somebody say amen if you believe that. So number one, the search is on. Secondly, the culture needs guarded. Ezekiel said, I look for a man, look at this, who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. You see, the reason the wall of righteousness needs rebuilt is because righteousness is what preserves our land. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. There are only two options. Which are we embracing? Are we embracing righteousness or are we embracing sin? The historical record shows that to embrace sin is to invite reproach. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. They, they embraced sin and God brought destruction. Think about the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. They embraced sin and idolatry. And in 722, they were destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom in 586 BC, because they embraced idolatry, God allowed destruction to come. The events of the last few months have exposed our nation as a nation that is no longer embracing righteous values In fact, we are rewriting our values altogether. A nation, listen to me, is not exalted by a political party. A nation is not exalted by a president or politicians. A nation is exalted by righteousness. Say amen if you believe that. And I'm not even talking about, listen, I'm not even talking about individual righteousness. That's important. It's important that you know Christ and I know Christ and we are intimate with him. But that's not even what this text is talking about. It's talking about the moral and ethical standards of a creator. It's not even saying that spiritual piety is that which must happen in everyone's life. What it is saying is there must be a standard of conduct that is established by a creator, that standard of conduct and that moral standard is what will keep a nation great. The riots were about no law. They were about no standard. They were about anarchy. And they quickly deteriorated into chaos and murder and destruction. It is what happens when we pull off all restraints restraints or standards. While the law cannot save us, the law, listen to me, look right here. The law is a reflection of the character of a moral and holy God. The law says don't kill because God says don't kill. The law says don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery, respect authority by honoring your father and mother. Don't lie, don't cheat, serve one God. That's a standard that reflects the moral character of our God. We're not even talking here about everyone knowing Jesus and everyone being a Christian. We're talking about a standard that reflects a moral and holy God. And when that is eliminated, when that righteous standard is eliminated, a society begins to decay. The righteousness that exalts a nation 
Is not even everyone going to church or everyone praying or everyone reading their Bibles or having faith in Christ? How nice that would be. Those things are required for personal salvation. But the righteousness that exalts a nation is a nation living by a standard of morality and ethics and rightness that reflect the character of a moral God. Today, there is a complete loss of absolute truth. Heterosexuality is no longer absolute. Gender is no longer absolute. Respecting authority is no longer absolute. Stealing and murder are no longer absolute. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. He was so right. Our courts oppose the righteous and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone. And anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find that there was no justice. Does that not describe America in 2020? It's unbelievable. That was written in 700 BC, and yet it reflects where our nation is today. Men and women, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, our culture needs guarded. Truth must be preserved. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraints. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Look at it again in the New Living Translation. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. I searched for a man, but there was none. Number three, real quickly, the gap needs filled. I searched for someone to stand in the gaps in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found none. Historian Thomas Carlyle famously said that the destinies of society are shaped by great men and women who act boldly at key times. God was looking for someone to step up to the plate, but no one was found. Someone to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful people, but no one stepped up. There was another day in Judah's history when that same thing happened, but this time someone did step up. It happened in the time of Hezekiah. Hezekiah would succeed his father Ahaz as the king of Judah. Notice the description of Ahaz's reign. This is the time. Now in the time of his distress, look at this. King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which he had defeated saying, because the gods of the kings of Assyria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. Go ahead and click the next screen if you would. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to the other gods. And he provoked to anger the God of his fathers. That was the reign of Ahaz, but his son Hezekiah would succeed him. And Hezekiah would lead God's people to spiritual revival. In 2 Chronicles 29, Hezekiah became king when he was just 25 years old and he reigned 29 years. If you read the rest of 2 Chronicles 29, you see the story of how Hezekiah stood in the gap 
And he brought spiritual awakening to the people of God. And what he did, listen, look right here, will bring awakening to America if we will follow his lead. How does a spiritual awakening happen in our nation? Let me share with you three or, things, three or four things very quickly. Number one, we need to clean up the junk in our own lives. The very first thing, read 2 Chronicles 29. The very first thing Hezekiah did was he went into the temple. He said to the priest, repair the doors that my father has torn down. I want you to clear all the junk out of the temple. They had just packed the temple full of junk and idols. He said, I want you to clean it up, get all the rubbish out of the temple and clean up the house of the Lord. Can I just tell you that revival does not start in Hollywood And it will not start in Washington. It will start when God's people clean up the junk in their own lives. God's awakening in the community always begins in the church. One of the greatest revivals the world has ever known. Certainly the greatest revival that Korea has ever experienced. And the greatest revival of the 20th century is traced back to one event when the Korean church was just a very small church and there were a few hundred believers in the whole country, there was a prayer service of the Korean church leaders. And Mr. Kang stood up and he was trembling and he said in what was barely a whisper, I have something to confess. I have for weeks harbored an intense hatred in my heart for Mr. Lee, our friend and our missionary. And I confess before God And I repent. The room fell silent. Everyone looked at Mr. Lee, who was taken aback and surprised. But after that initial reaction, he looked at Mr. King and he said, I forgive you. And what followed was people began to confess their sin. And what was supposed to be a few hour prayer meeting lasted till five in the morning. People confessed their sin. They repented before God. And what happened over the next few years, in one year, 50,000 Koreans came to Christ. And in the local college campus where this particular event took place, 90% of its students came to Christ. And now today, South Korea is one of the thriving missionary sending hubs in all of the world. And it started when somebody cleaned the junk up out of their own house. And they said, I have a spirit that is hateful. I have a spirit that doesn't forgive. I have a spirit of jealousy or of racism or of envy. And I confess that and I repent that and repent of that. And when that happened, God brought revival. Secondly, it will happen when we recenter ourselves with the word of God. Look at this very quick and I'm almost done. Hezekiah, if you read 2 Chronicles 29, 25 through 30, he stationed Levites in the appropriate place in the temple. And And the verse says he did that. For such was the commandment of God. And then he commanded burnt offerings to be made while they sang. And the verse says, for such was the commandment of God. And then they bowed and they worshiped before him and they prayed. And the verse says, for such was the commandment of God. And then they praised God. And it says, for such was the commandment of God. Four times, for such was the commandment of God. Look right here. In other words, Hezekiah said, we are going to do things by the book. We are going to do things by the word. We are going to recenter ourselves around the word of God. The wall of righteousness will be guarded and rebuilt. When time is given again to the preaching of the word, worship is biblically centered and our faith is not about feelings, but it's about truth. And finally, the wall will be guarded 
and we turn our attention back to the gospel. Second Chronicles chapter 30, Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover. The Passover, of course, as you know, celebrates the blood put over the door. And when God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over it. It represents that which would take place in the cross in the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, Hezekiah said, we're going to get back to the basics. And that's the Passover. And can I just tell you, the church needs to get back to the basics, which is the cross of Jesus Christ and the redemption that we have him in him. We have argued over politics. We have argued over social justice. And the church has forgotten the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will someone stand in the gap and point their families again to Jesus? And finally, when someone stands up and intercedes for the people of God, the nation can be turned. Why don't you stand with me? I just want to read you these scriptures and we'll be done. Look at this. Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 18. I love this. This is the end. I don't love it because it's the end. I just love this. You love it because it's the end. I just love it. All right. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves yet. And they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah, instead of judging them, he prayed for them. Look at this. He prayed for them saying, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and he healed the people. And then the priests, the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard. And their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Hezekiah cleaned up the house first. And then he said, we're going to get back and we're going to do it according to the commandment of the Lord. And then he said, we're going to celebrate the Passover. And then he said, I'm going to intercede for people that are broken. God's looking for somebody who will intercede for people that are broken to stand in the gap. To clean up their own house, to get back to the word, to get back to the cross. And to say, I will pray for those that are broken and hurting. Jonathan Edwards, who led in the first great awakening, the largest revival our nation has ever seen, said that an extraordinary, that extraordinary prayer is what characterized the great awakening. And then he went on to say, there is no awakening apart from prayer. Prayer doesn't bring the awakening. Prayer is the awakening. We have an enemy that is seeking to destroy our culture, seeking to destroy our families, seeking to destroy our young people and our nation. We don't need to be bystanders saying, well, somebody else will do it. We'll just see what happens. I don't want to get involved. That, That time has passed. We need to get involved. We need to do what Hezekiah did. We need to stand in the gap. And we need to pray and seek God and actively engage our culture in every every meaningful way actively engage with the truth of God's word and let's see God turn this nation toward him bow your heads with me if you would I wonder just with your heads bowed for just a moment maybe there's someone here today who's never invited Jesus to be the Lord of their life I don't want to pass that up I know I've been preaching to the church and I know it's not the most thrilling Father's Day message probably any of you have ever heard 
but I believe like it's God's word for today. If you're here today and you've never invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life and you say, Pastor Kevin, before I leave today, I want to know for absolute certain that I am serving him, that I am covered by his blood, that I'm ready for heaven. Anyone in this room that would raise a hand and say, would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone in this place today that would say, would you pray for me? I want to surrender my life to him. Anyone in this room. Can I just ask you this question? And secondly, how many would say, Pastor Kevin, I want to do my part. I I want to stand in the gap. I I want to clean up my own life. I want to center my life in the word of God and the gospel. And I want to stand in the gap and intercede. I want to see our nation turn. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I want to stand in the gap. I want to be one of those men or women that does that. How many would raise your hand with me and say that's the desire of my heart? Can we make this our prayer? Let's sing this and worship him and make this our affirmation.